Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books on Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure to speak with Michael Lind, who is the author of Land of Promise, An Economic History of the United States. Michael, how are you doing today? Just fine, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on. Yeah, it's a real, it's a real pleasure. Um, you come to us uh, uh, not from a traditional university academic setting, from, but from more of the world of uh, academic think tanks. Uh, before we get started, uh, started and talking about your interesting book, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about your really interesting and varied background. Well, my background was in uh, foreign policy. I studied uh, uh, international military history with Paul Kennedy at Yale and uh, have a degree in international relations, uh, a master's degree from Yale. I went on to work at the State Department and then to uh, journalism where I was Washington editor for Harper's Magazine. I worked at the New Republic uh, and uh, various other journals before collaborating with some folks and co-founding the New America Foundation back in uh, 1999, and I'm still there co-directing the economic growth program. It, as you said, it's quasi-academic, and one of the definitions of a think tank coined originally to describe Brookings was a university without students, although the Brookings Institution still grants uh, PhDs every now and then. I don't know if many people realize that. Uh, it, it was originally intended to be a full-scale university, and then they decided that uh, cutting class was more fun for the professors. <laughs> and that's right. the which, which, is born. Which is why they maintain their EDU uh, website to this day. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, well, your, your writing in the book, I think, reflects this, your, your background in a lot of ways, and, and you touch on just so many different areas and also is written in a way that, that reflects your, your background um, as, as a journalist. It's just very uh, uh, well-written and, and really interesting. But it also covers a lot of ground. Um, and so uh, uh, the, the title, I think, is, is accurate in that way. Um, maybe I can get started really at the very start of the book. Um, you begin the book uh, talking about what is today Patterson, New Jersey. And, and you seem to suggest that the history of Patterson, New Jersey, in many ways, is the history of America in microcosm. Um, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about Patterson's economic and political history and, and how it links to the structure of the overall book. Well, Patterson is uh, built uh, at the falls of the Passaic River, which is the largest source of natural water power uh, in the United States, uh, south of, of uh, uh, the Niagara Falls. And it was chosen by Alexander Hamilton, the first uh, Secretary of the Treasury of the United States, uh, as a way of sort of jump-starting American industrial modernization. Uh, Hamilton and his successors, who later in the 19th century included uh, the statesman Henry Clay and uh, President Abraham Lincoln, wanted the federal government to promote the industrialization of the United States so it could catch up economically and also militarily with the British Empire from which the United States had seceded. Uh, and so uh, Patterson, as Hamilton and his allies envisioned it in the 1790s, would be sort of a Silicon Valley research park of, of, of the kind uh, that a lot of developing countries create today where they put in the infrastructure, you know, they, they bring in investment. Uh, so uh, there are many modern parallels to this. Initially, it, it failed 
for various reasons, but then from the ashes of the original experiment rose a thriving industrial city, which, as I point out in, in the book Land of Promise, uh, played a pioneering role in one industrial era after another, from uh, locomotives in the 19th century to uh, aircraft in the early 20th century. Uh, it, it's become kind of a derelict today, but that region, uh, as you know if you've ever taken Amtrak between Manhattan and Washington, D.C., uh, is still a, a major area of uh, industrial manufacturing concentration and shipping, uh, all thanks to this uh, original 18th century experiment of the Washington administration. And if, if, if we go back also again to the, the start of this book and, and um, about what your in, intentions are, um, you, you state very early on as your objective to prove Henry Ford wrong when he said history more or is more or less bunk. What did Ford mean when he said this, and, and how are you challenging this assertion? Well, I argue against the idea that simply because the technology uh, that we have today is different, that therefore the policy choices we have are different. Uh, a lot of the debates about uh, economic policy in the United States, uh, whether the federal government is a threat to the economy or is a major partner to business, uh, w whether you can have industrial policy or not, whether we benefit from having free trade in all circumstances or should protect our industries in particular cases. These are perennial debates, uh, and they're the same debates now in the age of the transistor and the computer that they were in the age of the steam-powered uh, mill and railroad. So uh, I, I think once people understand this, uh, then it makes what otherwise would be a very dull chronicle uh, as, as many histories of the American economy are, frankly. I, I tried to avoid that in writing Land of Promise, you know, but it, it can be a deadly dull subject in which uh, the cotton gin is invented and then people get in covered wagons and go west and then the uh, stock market crashes in 1929 and bankers throw themselves out of windows. And, and technologies really are what bring the, these different sections of the book together and, and you start with the age of steam and then move on to the motor age and now we're in this information age. But it seems that your book is also about ways that we interpret these different ages. And you have two different ways um, that you describe, uh, the, the uh, developmental tradition versus the producerist vision. And so uh, I guess I'm curious which tradition you feel is, is the dominant American tradition, and, and who wins out in the end, Hamilton or Jefferson? Well, in Lands of Promise, I argue that the two main traditions are not liberal or conservative in the modern sense, uh, but rather the Hamiltonian tradition of developmental capitalism, named after Alexander Hamilton, the, the first secretary of uh, the Treasury in the Washington administration. Uh, and the other rival tradition is named after Hamilton's rival within George Washington's cabinet, uh, Thomas Jefferson, the Jeffersonian tradition of producerism, a, a term that is used by many historians of American politics and political economy. And these do not correspond to pro-government or pro-market. Both the developmentalists of the Hamiltonian school and the producerists of the Jeffersonian school want to, the government to rig markets, but for different objectives. Uh, the Jeffersonian producerists, whose uh, uh, school includes not only Jefferson, but Andrew Jackson and uh, agrarian populists like William Jennings Bryan, uh, and a lot of small government, uh, uh, particularly working class Tea Party conservatives today, want the government 
to rig markets to favor small producers over big producers. So they're not necessarily in favor of free markets if that leads to a concentration of wealth and power, uh, whereas they're perfectly comfortable with government interventions that protect small retailers against big chain stores, for example, small farmers against big agribusiness. That's the producerist tradition, small is beautiful. The developmental capitalist tradition of Hamilton and his successors uh, sees government and business as, and sometimes labor, not always. It's, the Hamiltonianism is found on the right as well as the left. But, but at its core, government-business collaboration to use technology to modernize the economy, uh, particularly with an eye to international rivalries, and, uh, not only military but economic rivalries. And if there are economies of scale, then a collaboration between big government and big business is perfectly acceptable to the Hamiltonians. They're not necessarily for bigness as such, but they lack the prejudice against, business, big, uh, against size, against scale which is central to the Jeffersonian vision of a society of small producers. So both sides are willing to uh, favor particular interests, but the objectives are different. The Jeffersonian vision is, cre is maintaining a republic of small farmers, small craftsmen, small shops, and local communities, whereas the Hamiltonian developmental tradition is much more uh, uh, interested in uh, creating a world-class uh, competitive military-industrial base. And throughout the rest of the book, we see this, this sort of uh, dichotomy play out, um, never more uh, prominently as, as in the New Deal. And we can fast forward uh, in, in sort of this, this history to the New Deal, which, which you refer to both as an economic revolution, but also as a social revolution. So we know some about the economic revolution, but what was the social revolution that Roosevelt wrought? Well, well, I think I uh, break some new ground in my discussion of the New Deal. Uh, it's often described as a first New Deal based on the National Recovery Administration, and this is described as a failed experiment in corporatism. And then the second New Deal, uh, which uh, came in Roosevelt's second term for the most part, and involved uh, Social Security and 40-hour week and uh, uh, minimum wage and many other innovations that exist to this day. Uh, there was a tension in the New Deal and in Roosevelt's mind itself between Hamiltonian developmentalism, which uh, characterized the government business uh, labor cooperation that was at the heart of the National Industrial Recovery Act, which was struck by, down by the Supreme Court for being unconstitutional. In the mid-30s, Roosevelt shifted to advisors who came much more from the Jeffersonian anti-big business, antitrust tradition. And both of these traditions, by the way, are represented on the center left, which makes makes uh, for lively debates among <laughs> liberals mm -hmm. uh, in the United States. Uh, what I, I emphasize in the book is the extent to which there was a third New Deal, although it's not described as that, which was World War II. And World War II transformed the economy far more than the New Deal had done uh, before Pearl Harbor. Uh, and it accelerated uh, the, the transition from farming to... Uh, uh, industrial wage earning majority because uh, a lot of uh, farmers moved to take uh, government uh, industrial jobs during the uh, uh, during the war and that became a, a permanent. Uh, it <clears throat> began loosening the caste system and, and constraints both on African Americans uh, but also on women in the workforce. Uh, and even though there was sort of a conservative backlash in the 1950s and 60s, a lot of the seeds 
for later liberalism uh, when it came to civil rights were laid uh, during World War II. Uh, and, and this is a subject that uh, uh, a lot of defenders of the New Deal aren't terribly comfortable with because even at the time, many progressives criticized the Roosevelt administration during the war for uh, its policy of uh, giving contracts to big business. Uh, and as I point out in Land of Promise, uh, even conservative economic historians, uh, or particularly, I should say, conservative economic historians, downplay the extent to which the industrial structure of the United States in the golden age of capitalism in the 1950s and 60s resulted actually from government-financed military construction of factories, uh, uh, particularly in the South and the West during the war. And let, let's talk about this, this um, next period of time, and because not everyone and was satisfied with these revolutions or, or with the New Deal itself. You, you write about the uh, conservative reformers or neoliberals of the 1960s and 70s, but you lay the title of the first neoliberal not on Milton Friedman or Richard Nixon or Ronald Reagan, but on Jimmy Carter. Uh, this, this is counterintuitive for, for many. So what did Carter and his administration do to deserve this title in the book? Well, remember, my dichotomy is not between left and right. It's between Hamiltonian developmentalism and Jeffersonian producerism. Uh, and from uh, the New Deal onwards, all the way up uh, through the 1960s, the dominant strain in American politics and, and policymaking was Hamiltonian. You know, the, you had this very powerful activist federal government, uh, had uh, won the war, uh, was seen as essential in successful prosecution of the Cold War, uh, was had gained enormous le legitimacy from massive infrastructure projects, uh, such as hydropower dams and uh, uh, the interstate highway system, which was begun under Roosevelt. It was completed under Eisenhower and was a, a sort of bipartisan project. Eisenhower and Nixon were so-called modern Republicans who, uh, although they wanted to tinker somewhat with uh, what the New Deal Democrats had wrought, they, they did not want to abolish Social Security or repeal agricultural subsidies or undo the New Deal itself. Uh, that's why Carter, rather than Reagan, uh, deserves, I think, his prominence as uh, the, the first presidential candidate in the late 20th century to represent a resurgence of Jeffersonian small-town agrarian values. I mean, you have to remember, he was portrayed as the uh, farmer, the peanut farmer from Plains, Georgia, who uh, uh, was going to restore old-fashioned virtue to this corrupt, overgrown Washington, uh, it wasn't simply Nixon's criminality, but it was this feeling that giant organizations, big business, giant labor unions, a swollen federal government were, were uh, stifling uh, freedom and, and individuality. Uh, and so I argue that you actually got a backlash, a kind of Jeffersonian backlash against the Hamiltonian New Deal era, which included figures on the left, such as Ralph Nader, uh, and a lot of figures on the right. But the right in the 1950s, you know, was General Electric, which hired, you know, Ronald Reagan as its spokesman. It was this giant, massive, modern, high-tech bureaucratic corporation uh, running uh, uh, programs about how electricity would create this futuristic home. Right? Uh, by the 1970s and 80s, you had a resurgence of the religious right. Uh, and uh, creationism and fundamentalism. And that was something, particularly at the national level, it always existed at the local level to some degree, particularly in the South, uh, which was really new in politics. So I argue this whole period 
beginning with Carter, uh, deepening with Reagan, up until fairly recently, uh, has, has represented a kind of nostalgic Jeffersonian backlash against the massive uh, structures of uh, the World War period and the uh, Cold War period. Yeah, and this is this is very consistent with um, the uh, the recent book by Daniel Stedman Jones that, that covers the sort of neoliberal history and just focusing on that. And a, a similar kind of story is told in in his work. Now, you you end the book with what I gather is a bit of a pet project for you, uh, the so-called next social contract. So, what's your vision for the next social contract? What would it entail exactly? Well, the idea of a social contract, which is not uh, original with me uh, by any means, uh, is that uh, you get particular regimes uh, or systems of law and, and institutions uh, to guarantee a, a minimum basic level of wages, benefits, uh, worker freedom, and so on in modern industrial societies. Uh, and they take somewhat different forms in different developed countries, but, but you have some kind of, of social contract in all of them. Uh, the, the great challenge for the United States is that the last major wave of structural change that really laid the groundworks of the present society took place in the New Deal in World War II and uh, was culminated with Johnson's reforms uh, of the Great Society, which in fact were kind of just delayed reforms that would have taken place in the 40s or 50s, if not for a Southern conservative opposition for the most part. Uh, so they're really part of the New Deal. Uh, some of the legacy of the New Deal, such as Social Security and Medicare, don't really need to be updated that much. You need to tweak them somewhat to make them solvent and sustainable, uh, and you may want to expand them in some cases. Uh, uh, but, but there's another aspect of the New Deal which a lot of progressives in particular tend to ignore, and that's the extent to which uh, there were sectoral policies to raise working class and rural incomes so that farmers and industrial workers could become middle class. Uh, within the industrial sector, uh, you had the government under Roosevelt and his successors, at least the Democratic successors, backing labor unions. Uh, in the rural sector, uh, which employed a great number of people uh, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, you had farm subsidies, uh, which were originally intended not to benefit agribusiness, but to actually create a rural middle class. Now, why is that important? It's because in uh, 1940, nearly half of all Americans were factory workers or farmers. And so those sexual policies created a mass middle class. They didn't cover everybody. And there were a lot of people who, you know, uh, uh, continued to be very poorly paid menial workers. But, but you did create a mass middle class based in the industrial sector and in the uh, agricultural sector. Today, agriculture, depending on how you define it, uh, directly employs only a few percent of Americans, even though more people are employed in agriculture-related activities. And about 10% of Americans are working in the manufacturing sector, uh, and mainly as a result of automation, not trade, that's going to shrink in the future. It's not a bad thing. The reason agriculture and, and manufacturing employment has shrunk is because of productivity, which allows us to grow more food and make more goods with fewer people. But what it means is that the growing sector in the U.S. and all of the data since the Great Recession and even before, back to the 1990s, shows that most of the new jobs are being created in the non-traded domestic service sector. It's non-traded so that people in this uh, sector are not exposed to foreign competition. Uh, and a lot of these are, are 
direct person-to-person service jobs. Uh, uh, the great growth is taking place in healthcare, which includes a lot of fairly menial nursing aid, home health aid jobs, uh, uh, in uh, education uh, at all levels, uh, from preschool all the way up to uh, college, and also uh, leisure and hospitality and retail, which includes great numbers of restaurant workers. And there's nothing wrong with this. It's exactly the pattern you would expect in an advanced, evolving industrial economy in which food and manufactured goods get cheaper and cheaper, and so people spend their money more on quality of life services, including health and education and recreation. But the problem is that our system uh, was designed to create a middle class in the middle of the 20th century among uh, unionized factory workers and among family farmers, and we do not have the institutions or norms or laws in place to turn a lot of the workers in these growing sectors into a middle class rather than a very uh, poorly paid class of the working poor, and I think that's the great challenge we face. Yeah, I, I think, you know, as I stated at the start, this book covers a lot, and I, I imagine anyone listening to this can, can get a sense of the, the real breadth of the argument that you make, and for that reason, I strongly recommend this. I think it's... Um, uh, has many really interesting insights, but also is accessible, I think, to those that, that maybe haven't, uh, don't have a uh, up-close read on some of these issues. What's next for you? Do you have a, a new book project uh, that you're working on or uh, a new uh, line of, of policy research that, that you're following? What's, what's on your summer work agenda? Well, well no uh, new books at the moment. Uh, one of the thing, my, things my colleagues and I in the Economic Growth Program at the New America Foundation are, are continuing to look at is the uh, long-term evolution of what we think of as the real economy, that is uh, manufacturing, uh, infrastructure, and energy, the, the physical underpinnings uh, of the evolving economy in the United States and around the world. Uh, and, and that's very interesting. As you, as you know, the shale gas revolution has completely upended most assumptions about peak oil and peak gas in a rapid transition uh, uh, to renewable energy. Uh, but there's also some interesting counterintuitive trends in uh, energy uses. It turns out that thanks to all of the uh, devices that we use, including iPads and, and iPhones, uh, electricity use is, is surging and straining our electrical grids. So, so you know, if, you, if you think of each of these technological eras as being characterized by a particular infrastructure, the railroad system in the first industrial uh, era, uh, the automobile system in the uh, airlines in the second industrial revolution. Then in today's uh, third industrial era, based on computers and on uh, uh, the Internet, you know, I, I uh, would argue that we're going to see equally striking, iconic new forms of infrastructure, everything from gigantic electricity-consuming uh, cloud computer data centers which will become as common in the landscape as dams were in the New Deal era, uh, to uh, uh, new transportation, which will involve uh, self-driving uh, cars and taxis and trucks. And that's something that people have only begun thinking about, uh, the robotic car, but it's on its way. Well, I hope that at some point that work turns into a book because it sounds like it would be a great addition to this current book, uh, Land of Promise, an Economic History of the United States, that was, um, it looks like, originally published in hardback uh, by HarperCollins in 2012 and just out in paperback from first Harper. Michael, is that the right description of 
its path towards the uh, uh, where people can purchase it? Yes, that, that's exactly right. And uh, uh, it covers the last 300 years, but if I were to do a sequel, I wouldn't wait that long. <laughs> right, and so if you want this 300 years in, in just, oh, I don't know, uh, a little over 500 pages, I, I would strongly recommend the, uh, either the hard copy or the paperback version of this book. Michael, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you.